Dale Baran is a journalist and author of It Came From Something Awful. This is Dale Baran. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. All right, uh, I'm here with uh, Dale Baran. Uh, thank you for joining me today. No problem. Uh, so you wrote a book called It Came From Something Awful, and it's about 4chan, which I imagine when you came to your publisher and said, I'm going to write a book about 4chan, they were just thrilled that there, someone was going to write about this obscure internet community. Um, but it, it, it turns out to be really important. Um, why, what motivated you to write this book in the first place? <laughs> a good question. I had written um, a piece on Medium, actually. No one would publish it. I did pitch it to a few places. Um, they said no. And then I just put it up on Medium uh, called 4chan, the skeleton key to the rise of Trump. And that was um, 2017, uh, early on, like January, February, I think. Um, so right after Trump had gotten elected. So I guess in this moment of crisis, when everyone was like, what happened? People right. wanted answers. Um, and so the piece went viral, I think probably because of that. It was just sort of at that moment where people were looking to get supplied with answers about why that had happened. Yeah. Uh, but it also turned out to be just a little bit ahead of the curve with like talking about the alt-right and its origins on 4chan and like these idiotic figures like Milo Yiannopoulos and stuff. They hadn't yet become front page news, but um, all that stuff sort of, so I guess I was just luckily like an inch ahead of the curve there. And, and after that, I guess I just became the 4chan guy <laughs> yeah, got yeah, burdened yeah. with it uh and the book kind of grew out of that um uh you know people said you know well you have to write the rest you have to write the book you have to do the rest of it um and yeah i pitched it to some publishers and as you say that i guess the um most of them said what is this right, right. <laughs> like they didn't know what it was um and then after i explained it to them they were horrified uh, mm -hmm. um so yeah, that, that's sort horrified, of weird. Sorry, horrified how? Like horrified, we don't want to publish this or horrified, oh my God, you've unveiled this terrible thing. Um, I think um, most people were, I, I don't know exactly, you know, the motivations behind whether people said yes or no on the project. So of course, right. ultimately, um, uh, St. Martin's said, said yes. And I had some nice publishers over there who were interested in it. Um, um, I think they were, myself included horrified by the content of 4chan um and I, now i think it got to a point where everyone knows that there's this disgusting place called 4chan sort of out more out in the open but it really felt like this disgusting secret that i was sort of dredging garbage up from um for a long time uh so yeah that that's sort of where where the the mo that's what how i got cursed with writing about this forever yes. now because I assumed it would go away, but of course it just keeps getting worse and worse. <laughs> well, the, the interesting, what makes it so fascinating a subject is that it really, even though it's it ties into the rise of Trump and all these things, it really is much bigger than him. And it's it it has a much more sweeping history. Like, okay, in in your book, the first part of it is dedicated to just talking about the history of, a, of, of counterculture movements from like the 60s and 70s. Um, which I want to go into and how that relates to the sort of counterculture of 4chan. Um, so why, first off, why just as a writer, why did you include that as the first part of the book? Uh, yeah. So 
I felt like I, I needed to explain what 4chan was and how it was popular. And I felt like it did represent a counterculture and sort of felt very cutting edge at the time. And I guess I didn't know why, even when I was, these are sort of questions I was wrestling with when I wrote the essay. And then when I had, when I was writing the book and I felt like those were topics that I had already kind of been thinking about a little bit. Um, and I had done a little bit of writing on, but it felt like that, like why, if the internet is this blank slate, why does 4chan become wildly popular, right? Why, what is it about internet memes popping up there? That means they sort of take over everywhere in our culture. Um, what is it about like that attitude that everyone had that seemed to be just sort of in the, the air about like all the teens and young men there were super cynical. They had this sort of toxic attitude. There was sort of this competition to outgross one another to say the most offensive thing. Well, where did that come from, right? Like what, why that of all youth cultures? It's not like youth culture before was like that or even after to some extent. So I, I felt like I wanted to answer those questions, I, I guess. Um, whether I did a successful job, I don't know. I guess the reader will have to <laughs> decide whether it was relevant. I, I think so. And I, I should have mentioned up front for people who have no idea what we're talking about here, 4chan, would you just describe it as like a message board online? Yeah, that, that's good to sort of define it. Um, it. Yeah, it's a message board online, a very early message board. So it looks sort of like a, a janky site from the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, and uh, it has images too. So it, it's kind of just, effectively, it looks like a flow of content. So another way of understanding it would be like, kind of what uh, a jankier version of what Twitter or, or Facebook feed looks like now, where sort of popular stuff gets bumped to the top and people are constantly posting. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's what that's what 4chan is. It started as an anime message board and then all sorts of stuff appeared there. And, and people are anonymous on it, right? Yeah, that's another distinctive feature that um, the idea that there were no usernames that unlike other American forms at the time where you would sign up, have a username, default, everyone was anonymous. You could put in a username, but part of the culture was that you would never would, that you would just always, everyone would be anonymous there, which sociologically we've now learned has, leads to really gross, disgusting <laughs> Yes. Um, and, and getting, I guess, diving more into the, those previous sort of counterculture movements, I thought one of the, the sort of interesting threads that you brought up was that uh, in the 50s and 60s, um, or especially in the 50s, I suppose, there was this, um, the, the, the sort of conformist male archetype was to be the breadwinner of the family. And that was a position that required a certain amount of uh, economic uh, success, stability. Um, and then you have something like Playboy come along, which says, hey, you know, if you're a guy in your 30s or late 20s and you're a bachelor, you know, you're not uh, a, a closeted homosexual or a failure as a man. You're, you know, you're, this is just another way of winning sort of the economic game. And then you have people like the Beats who, and I think this gets into my question about um, how this relates to the young man on 4chan. Mm -hmm. uh, do you see the Beats, these men who didn't want to or couldn't fit into that archetype of being 
economically stable, successful men as being uh, sort of kindred spirits to the the young men on 4chan? (laughs) I think the beats wore it better, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Um, Yeah, so I think you described it well. That's, uh, I lean there on Barbara Ehrenreich as a a great feminist writer, uh, writes on all sorts of stuff, but that that, that was sort of her description of what came before 4chan for for male archetypes. Um, I think on 4chan, what happened was, and we, uh, we saw this more and more, was that um, as young people, their economic condition got worse and inequality arose. So you got more young people who didn't have a lot of money. Uh, those two male archetypes became unreachable, became sort of, and then there was a crisis when they couldn't either become a breadwinner uh, or they couldn't become a successful playboy. And the crisis, you would think it, 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 it would be great if they all just became sort of beatniks and like, well, whatever, we don't care. I don't need any of that stuff. Right. Uh, but instead we found, we got very toxic male culture. So we got like the crisis resulted in an in incel culture. So this idea that I'm just going to drop out um, or, uh, and I'm going to live my life dropped out consuming fantasy products Um and sometimes I'm just going to say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm doomed to be on the bottom forever. Uh, therefore, you know, I'll never, I'll never make it in life. And that's sort of like this otaku attitude, this idea of like a hyper consumer that drops out. Never, and, and then like the idea of the incel was like the idea that you would never even have any romantic partner. So that was one. And then the fascist ideology was another. So this idea that like modern society has ruined your chances at becoming a successful male, either a breadwinner or a playboy. And therefore, you know, you got to hype, you got to, you got to like, to get to that point, uh, you have to be sort of this like hyper traditionalist guy to you know, like, and, and you have to sort of wipe and you have to, and, they, and it gets at the resentment towards modern society where they feel like, oh, that has to be wiped away. Yes. Um, yeah. So that's sort of how I guess those, all of those pieces play out now um, uh, if they are uh, indeed, this, if that's the correct way of understanding it. <laughs> that's, do you, um, do you at all see any parallels between that and sort of like the hell's angels who back in the sixties were, or the fifties were a lot of, you know, after world war two, they, they're the people who couldn't make it in society and they just they hated the world. They didn't know who they hated, but they were going to get them. And, you know, <laughs> Do, do you see that? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to compare. I think there are uh, some parallels there. I love I love the writing. You know, there's a lot of great writers who wrote on that subject. Um, right. You know, Hunter S. Thompson and um, uh, Ken Kesey, I guess, to a little bit, uh, uh, to some extent as well. Uh, and that idea of like, that the Hells Angels were this crisis, were about sort of the crisis of masculinity in the sense that in the 60s, there was this idea that uh, um, men, men in particular, but people in general in modern society were hyper-controlled and that sort of the, the free-willing masculine spirit was like crushed in, the, in modern society. You didn't make any choices for yourself. Becoming a breadwinner was crushing your spirit. And, and that sort of adventure that you had maybe in, in the army or earlier, um, it, you know, modern life was not suited to the sort of free-willing maverick like spirit of, of being a male. And it, and it was really only men. It wasn't extended to being a human being most of the time. Sometimes it was. Right. Um, 
and you know, to some extent, I feel like that that's true. <laughs> like, um, I was, I'm sorry. No worries. Um, yeah, to some extent that that's true that, um, it, the, the forces today in society, you know, society, I think wants you to drop out and play video games all day. Right. It's easier to like, to get an education is very difficult and hard and expensive. If you want to order a bunch of PlayStation games, they will come to my apartment the next day on Amazon, right? <laughs> like, sure. like society sort of prioritizes what the otaku do, uh, what like 4chaners do. Um, and so that idea of like being just dropping out and, and consuming products and not even participating in society and sort of just giving into all of that, um, uh, that is sort of part of what's going on. And then, and then it flips, they, when, when they get to that extreme and do that, then they realize, wait a minute, no, I've, I've pushed that to an extreme and, and therefore they have a crisis and they're like, you know, I, I need to be, you know, a, a hyper-masculine male, or I need to sort of be free. And like all of, all of this stuff that's sort of, uh, 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 oppressing me to be this, live this really unhealthy lifestyle, all these sort of societal forces. Well, can't we just wipe it all away? Can't we just get rid of it and live some other way? that is sort of more conducive to, to, uh, to sort of all of the spirit crushing things about mo the modern world. Now, right. when they do it, it's a stupid crisis, right? It's like, they're still very confused, uh, but there are real critiques about, um, I, I think in that idea that, um, that yeah, that like <laughs> society is not often con conducive to living your best life. I guess that was sort of the, the idea of the counterculture from the sixties. And, that counterculture from the 60s, as you talk about, basically, in a lot of ways, got co-opted. And, and it was not, um, you know, like, I, and this is something I'm interested in your opinion on, but there was something that uh, it, it, it was like over the summer during all the protests, Lululemon was had like um, a workshop for like, uh, like breaking down capitalism and yoga and stuff. <laughs> and people were like, what, what the, f like, you're a billion dollar company. And eventually they canceled it, but it was such a clear example of, okay, if a multi-billion dollar company can, can, can take your message and spit it back out at you and make mm -hmm. money off of it, like maybe it's not as subversive as you think, <laughs> or, or maybe you're, you're taking the wrong angle. Like, do, do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Right. Yes. I think that is a, valid suspicion to have. Um, yeah, so I, I guess I have another anecdote. I'll tell you about that as well. It's very similar. Um, um, but yeah, so well, first in, in the book, you're right. As I said earlier, when I was like, well, where does the irony come from? Where, why are people competing on 4chan in the early 2000s to be uh, hyper offensive? Um, and, and they're sort of like hyper nihilistic and hyper ironic where they're like, nothing's real. Yeah. I thought that grew at a sense of co-optation where anything that was interesting in young people's lives or they were into was then sort of picked up in marketing and tried to sell back to them so they could buy products. So eventually what this happened, what happened with this hyper co-optation was sort of a hyper nihilism where you're like, I don't care about anything. You can, I don't have any feelings. You can steal anything from me. It doesn't matter. It's all meaningless pop culture garbage. Um, yeah, and that is still an issue today. Like other writers obviously talk about that sort of co-optation both before and after me. Uh, and when I wrote the book, I did another podcast, I don't know, like two years ago, um, 
uh, with a great guy, uh, Nathan. Um, and we talked about this. He loved the book. Uh, and his other job was writing um, all the tweets for uh, Steakum. Steakum um, yeah, Steakum is a fried meat product, a frozen meat product. <laughs> and so he that was his job. And so he turned the Steakum Twitter into like a hardcore critique of capitalism, misinformation, uh, like the right, you know, like Steakum would explain where the far right came from, would, would explain a lot about corporate co-optation and people loved it. They ate it up. So the Steakum... <laughs> And now there are TV ads with Steakum. You open your freezer, you see the frozen meat product, and he's like a, a sage explaining society to you. Um, and they, I, you know, I was like, I was like, I was like, Nathan, you did a great job. He's like, thanks, man. I, it's all from your book. I read your book. Uh, <laughs> so my book about how capitalism co-ops everything got turned into like a marketing product yeah. for frozen That's meat so products. Um, uh, yeah, so you know, it, it's like people want to know, you know, all these things. Answer these things. So why not sell your meat product by telling them <laughs> about the student loan crisis or whatever, or how capitalism got us here? Yeah. So it's still, wow. it's certainly still happening. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that is so. How did you feel about that? I, I think it's fine. <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, Nathan is a very nice guy. Um, I mean, I think. Um, you know, I, I, it, it's like, it's the world that we live in, right? I mean, it, it's, it certainly didn't disprove my ideas in the book. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, how do you navigate that? Like, what, what do you do? Um, I think that's the hardest thing for me to answer. I like, you know, I've talked to colleges and, and stuff and like, you know, the undergrads are like, okay, well, what do you do? What, you know, you've defined all these problems. <laughs> I don't know if I have, you know, ways to get out of it, right? Ways to get like sort of break the co-optation, even though the cultural movements that I wrote about, like the hyper irony, the hyper nihilism were kind of tools to do that. Um, you know, they obviously they led us to sort of very difficult places <laughs> where th those, a lot of those 4chan in particular, those communities moved into fascism, uh, which was in a sense like a, a revolt against the modern world. That's how they, that was fascism in the thirties. And so they see it now again. So, you know, it, it, it's a, it's a difficult, uh, you know, how, how do you kind of break that cooptation and, and put valid critique in there? Well, I think it is happening more than ever. I don't know the, the best way to do it though, but yeah, <laughs> I feel fine about, um, you know, I haven't eaten steak in a while, but yeah. maybe hopefully people are also enjoying the frozen meat products with the, <laughs> with my ideas. Have you, um, <laughs> are, are you familiar with, um, Adam Curtis, the filmmaker? Yeah. Definitely. Because okay. um, that's one of the things that he talks about a lot in in, um, in a lot of his documentaries that because the individual has become like the, the focal point, the, the fundamental social unit where it's all about expressing yourself and, you know, how do you feel and, you know, my personal experience and lived experience and all these things. And it's very easy to co-opt that because if if you were just isolated down to a single like person and you're not part of some sort of social bonds, then you're just one consumer. You're like an atom. Right. And you, you, you know, you don't exist in a world. You don't, society doesn't exist. And it's, it's right. just becomes, right. a, you know, okay. Like the whole, when I see shirts that say like the future is female, 
I get how, and they're being sold for like 30 bucks and they're being right. made by 12 year old girls in Bangladesh who are working, you know, slave wages. Right. I get how people on 4chan look at that and roll, roll their eyes, you know, like, do, do you at all empathize? Obviously not with their conclusions, but with like the disgust over all of this. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think the, I, I consider myself a not uh, anti-corporatist left. So um, someone who is on the left, sort of like, a you know, I supported Bernie and so forth. So that that end of the left where I think that that political side of the political spectrum is also disgusted with it in many ways. Right. So the um, a lot of the times I think on a lot of those fundamentals, we might agree with radicals on or people, uh, people on the other side. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly that, and, and that, you know, the left sort of owned that critique until uh, the 2015, 2016, when there was this sort of weird 4chan counterculture that, that, that emerged on the far right. Um, and so there, so there was this sort of competition for, you know, in youth culture between who would be anti-establishment and that dovetailed with a competition in, <clears throat> in politics in general for who would be the populist party. He would sort of be the anti-globalization party, anti-corporate party, um, whether it would be, um, you know, the Democrats or the Republicans, the left or the right. And in some sense, Trump won, right? Trump, like the, the Republicans won that, that coalition. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, these problems, which many writers, including myself, have sort of highlighted, right? It's like, it feels like they're still, you know, that the highlighting them has not made them go away, but maybe we're sort of more cognizant. Maybe we're sort of like the conversations that are moving forward in a way where the people who are more aware of them, it means that like, you know, like how many, how many co-optations of like corporations telling you about how bad capitalism is, does it take before like that cycle just sort of breaks down <laughs> completely? We, maybe we're at the end of it in that way. Um, and I guess we should mention that 4chan in the beginning was not this hive of the alt-right. I mean, they had plenty of, you know, like racist jokes and things like that on there, but it, it was not predominantly the home for those kinds of people. And, and in fact, the, the guy who started it, his nickname is like Moot. Yeah. He said, and I'm, I'm quoting him here. He said he was... The reason he started it is because he was bored and in need of porn. Right. It's like, okay, th that is the real question. Like, how does a site that starts off like that, which there are countless sites on the internet that start off like that are porn sites. Right. How does a site like that, one, get popular and right. two, become this cultural force? So let's, let, first off, how does that become popular? Why do okay. people gravitate to it? Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, the answer is I, I had to sort of supply the answer through culture, right? Like through, well, well, what about the site appealed to people? And then what was the, what about the content of the site? So the architecture of the site turns out it was like proto social media. It, it had this constantly updating feed full of pictures, full of memes for Chan, uh, moot when he was 15 year old, 15 years old and started 4chan. He didn't invent memes, but 
he was part of something awful, the community that came before it, another popular message board that more or less where the first memes came from. Memes were banned on something awful, but Moot gave them a home on 4chan. So here you have this sort of flowing feed of content with full of memes and the popular, most popular stuff gets pumped to the top. So th an idea that sort of took over the entire internet, the entire internet looks like that now. But back then it was only on 4chan. So you have a very addicting structure to the site. And then content wise, it was sort of like the cutting edge of youth culture at the time. So a lot of young people had been raised on Japanese entertainment products as sort of the rise of entertainment products in the past 20 years before that had really grown. So marketing towards children, marketing leisure products in this sort of post-war boom. And a lot of that came from Japan. So they were all sort of Japanized in their interests. Um, and then that culture sort of combined with this idea of like the Japanese otaku, the idea of like hyper-consumerism where you're just gonna drop out, watch anime, be on your screen all day, be on your computer, um, combined with the hyper-nihilism of sort of like being so cynical that everything is consumerism and culture. That was sort of like the youth culture that it embodied um, that were reflected in, in memes. The, it's like early memes and so forth. So that was also highly popular. So that's sort of where it came from. And it's weird, it's still that ed, it's still the cutting edge youth culture today, right? Like if you see young people posting, they're posting 4chan memes, like the 4chan characters, Wojak and so forth that were invented on 4chan in like 2007. Yeah. And of course they love memes. So it's like very, it's strange how little it's sort of moved in, in a sense. Um, yeah. And, and that's it, what's the memes uh, and, and being anonymous is definitely a core part of it. Um, and there was at one point, like they, they, they did some kind of, and you talk about this in the book where they, they found that they were not just these powerless people that they were growing into a force. Like, um, they, they showed up and they trolled Scientology. Uh, can, you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, the history of 4chan is, is weird and tortured. It's not sort of a straight line. Um, so, yeah, it's founded by Moot in 2015. Uh, sorry, 2003, when he's 15 years old. Um, and at the time, yeah, it's weird because that in itself is strange. Like most sites are founded by people a little older and then the, the popular ones, their corporations, this really was like a, a kind of like a, a roly poly fan operation. It was just a kid doing it. Yeah. Um, it gets wildly popular. And the other thing um, that was on something awful and sort of in these communities of tech savvy teens who were inventing like early memes uh, was this idea of trolling collectives. So now trolling collectives are everywhere but that was another early idea that was just in this small subgroup of friends. Um, What's a trolling collective? So this idea that um, the very idea of trolling where you're just sort of cyberbullying someone or having throwing a, putting a practical joke on someone through the internet, uh, ruining someone's time on the internet, um, that became part of their youth culture. And then they would gang together in groups of 10, 30, 40, 100 people, right? They would all pile in a chat room and start coordinating huge pranks. Uh, so they realized that um, they were, as the site got more and more popular, thousands, hundreds of hundreds, thousands of kids would pile into a chat room and they thought, well, if we can prank, we can ruin someone's life by doing this. You know, so we'll, we decide, oh, we hate this guy over here. Let's ruin his life for fun. Uh, can we do that to an organization we hate? 
So they did this to Scientology. They thought like, well, that's a good target. Everyone hates them. Yeah. Um, and they, they made a huge impact and they're like, well, this is fun actually. So we have collective power. Um, and so it flipped. They sort of started out as nihilistic teens, but like, whatever, I'm going to drop out. I'm just going to uh, consume anime and we're going to have nihilistic jokes. Then by 2007, um, their trolling collective, which called itself anonymous, realized that they had huge power. So they, so they felt like the sense of agency. Um, and they ended up becoming this very famous hacker group, maybe the most famous in the world. Uh, they went on, uh, so 2008, uh, they they uh, have this very public campaign that's in the media about fighting Scientology. They coordinate street protests around the world. Um, 2009 is a bit of a lull, 2000, but 2010, 2008 was also the, the stock market crash. So 2010, 2011, there's Occupy Wall Street. There's a lot of um, negative uh, feeling towards banks, toward government. Uh, and Anonymous sort of evolves into this anti-corporate far-left hacktivist collective that is aligned itself with WikiLeaks and Julian Assange and Occupy Wall Street. Uh, and so, Anon so Anonymous, which grew up 4chan as a trolling collective, kids pulling pranks, suddenly become this hacktivist, activist, uh, huge hacker collective. But it turns out that the FBI... Um, was very much involved in all of their chat rooms. And in a coordinated raid, they arrest a great deal of people one day, kind of shatter Anonymous into pieces. Um, those people go off and do other things. This is 2012, 2013. And in that, what was called the moral vacuum, everyone left on 4chan just became an otaku again. It was a, there was a new generation of poor younger people there. Um, who, whose lives are kind of worse off than the last generation who were like, yeah, I love being a cynical otaku and dropping out of life forever. That's me. Uh, and then the older people, um, those that were left had been there for a really long time by this point. And uh, the moral people had either left or been arrested. Um, and so that's 2013, 2014 Gamergate, what's sometimes considered the genesis of the alt-right starts on 4chan in the communities of newer younger people on 4chan whose lives are sort of worse, who consider, who believe fundamentally that they're, they belong on 4chan forever. And they say, okay, well, we're incels, we belong here, we're ne our lives are never gonna get better. Uh, and, and, and they end up turning to the far right because of that sort of weird despair. And, and I remember when Anonymous and all those, the, the hacking was going on and WikiLeaks and Julian Assange is, is hopping from country to country and right on a trampoline on a on a cell phone talking to like people from the state department i'm like this is so cool this is just awesome right i'm so glad that this is happening and it right. just it it really i mean we, we could almost take a moment just to say it really sucks that this is the way that 4chan went <laughs> because it could have been so much more cool like it it, yeah, it right you know it I, was cool Right. I think, yeah, what you're expressing, I think, is a, an important component of it, which I felt also at the time, which it really felt like it was very difficult to challenge big power structures in the early 2000s uh, during that era before Anonymous came around. I had one, I spoke to one uh, person who was sort of deeply involved in Anonymous, and she uh, 
uh, ended up writing about it being a reporter, but she was like, it just felt like she told me that she, she said, it just felt like at the time, you know, like there was nothing you could do. And then Anonymous came along. And then she sort of saw Anonymous giving these protests. And she's like, they actually are challenging these big power structures. And it feels like, and that grew out of like, before that, everyone did just like 4chan, they just felt nihilistic. They felt like that's, there was sort of a Gen X on we where you're like, I can't really do anything. Capitalism has won. Like this sort of, this is the world we live in. Um, and that's it. That was sort of the, what I wrote about in the book, the, the, the quote unquote end of history idea <laughs> that like there was sort of nothing you could do. Um, so yeah, it's sad that, um, uh, that that movement kind of shattered or, or fell apart at least for the time being. And then um, it evolved into something much worse. So yeah, I, and it's hard to say, it's like, could, it could be that the, 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 collapse of that anonymous effort sort of led to the next group trying to swing into the far right and trying something very different. Um, but, if, but it was, I think, a confluence of factors that kind of led to the, to the, ne- the alt-right movement. Um, yeah. But you're probably right, we're probably living in the worst of all possible worlds. <laughs> yeah. There's probably worse ones, but. At least, at least in terms of fortune, definitely. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that, do you think though that there's a part of, um, well, first I don't want to stray too too far from the anonymous thing for a sec. It, what happened to those guys? Did did they all are, are they still around? What did they get arrested for? They're still around. Um, I I spoke to some of them for the book, and then the, the interesting and both nice and frustrating thing about writing a book is that people come to you after um, and they're like, oh, I saw your book. I was involved. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and that happened to me a lot. So I learned a lot more after I wrote the book and I wrote a piece in Atlantic on, uh, on anonymous. And I'm, I'm set to have a piece in wired coming out soon also. Um, and yeah, so a lot of them moved on but there was a few of them who still sort of, a lot of what happened is that a lot of them stopped publicizing what they do. So after the FBI arrested a lot of them, they're like, well, I'll just do the same thing. We just don't have to tell anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, um, And there's sort of lately been a resurgence. So a lot of the key figures involved who started it back in 2006, 2007, realized kind of turned around with the realizing that the chans had still had never stopped being a problem right they had spawned the alt-right uh and now they had spawned QAnon, um and the people who had started anonymous back in the day thought okay well enough is enough can we sort of use our skills to, to, to fight back there um and they are doing some of that so they have been involved in um uh, both publicly and, and sort of privately working against that. So one public example is that um, during the January 6th um, riot at the Capitol, um, Parler, uh, all of the data of Parler was stripped. That was partly an anonymous effort. And Don Gamby, the hacker involved, identifies as an anonymous hacker. And she was inspired by uh, another guy I wrote about who was one of the the founders of Anonymous, um, uh, Aubrey Cottle, who is already sort of working um, to look for parlor exploits. So there you have on January 6th, a uh, 
uh, QAnon, partly QAnon inspired riot and, and attack on the Capitol, insurrection against the United States. And then during the hearings uh, in the Senate about it, they use all of the data that Anonymous stripped from Parler that day as evidence. <laughs> it's a wild time where it's 4chan against 4chan culture. Yeah. That's, um, do you think, well, what I was going to ask was, do you think that even though this, as we said, was like the worst of all worlds for 4chan, mm -hmm. do you think though that uh, on some level, sort of the seeds of, of this uh, current uh, incarnation were laid early on, where like, if you're just a nihilist, if nothing matters, you hate the world, then sure, why not, uh, you know, go into a church and start shooting people. Fuck it. Who cares? Everyone, everyone sucks anyway. Like that sort of extreme nihilism, isolation and rage can very easily turn into something destructive. Yes. Uh, I think that I would agree. I think that's true that I think even people who were deep in the culture, who later got involved in far left hacktivism and anonymous sort of in, at a certain point, they kind of grew up and they realized it was actually a very toxic culture. And I regret a lot of the culture that I promoted back then, that 4chan was never really an, a nice place. It was always cruel-minded, um, celebrating self-destruction uh, and destruction and, and being cruel and um, being callous, which is a very adolescent attitude. And particularly for that era, it was, a, there was sort of this Gen X, late Gen X, but like idea of like shrugging disinterest, uh, which then translated into nihilism. And you're very right that that reaches a breaking point. And so if you're already there, you know, there would be like I describe in the book, there's sort of like examples of people wanting to kill themselves and everyone on 4chan being like, yeah, you know, live stream it. This is, po you know, posted. And that was sort of part of the culture that you were celebrating that. Um, so yeah, it definitely, it was there from the very beginning. <laughs> it was a toxic culture from the very beginning. Um, so maybe in a sense, it, it was inevitable um, that it got this, it got this bad, um, that it sort of became, it was always considered sort of the waste product of the internet, like the worst. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, and what, what about the role of irony in, in all this? Because we've been talking about how people like um, there's a great Kurt Vonnegut quote that we become what we pretend to be. And you see right. a lot of, I forget who, but there was some white supremacist who wrote um, a list of tips on how to like convert people to the movement. And the main one was like, oh, just post um, like memes about Holocaust jokes. And like, so people can't tell if we're joking or not. And right. then, but like, you know, of course, you know, we actually, we're not joking, but if people can't tell, well, and, and you just keep repeating it and, you know, you see people ironically posting Holocaust jokes and then they're ironically doing Nazi salutes. And then we're ironically, like at a certain right. point, you're just a guy who you, you just are a Nazi. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Right. The irony melts away. If it's, if it's acceptable to you, if you're not objecting and you're like doing it as a joke for a suddenly it, it, it just, yeah, it sneaks in as something acceptable. Um, yeah, I think it was Weave, uh, who was an old 4chan troll who, who then uh, who then was sort of slightly involved in Anonymous, though he was too offensive even for most of Anonymous. And then 
he went on to run the Daily Stormer. Um, so he became an infamous neo-Nazi. I think he maybe wrote that guide and that was an old trolling fortune rule as well. They kind of recognized early on that. Eventually, if you kind of said something with a lot of irony, people, a lot of people on fortune would just say it very legitimately. Um, uh, yeah, and that, yeah, it, it, it's the problem with, if you really, you know, profess to not care about um, anything, if you're sort of always just um, uh, have sort of a vacant, vacant, uh, vacancy where your, your morals or your, your beliefs should be, like what is the expression? Nature abhors a vacuum, right? Like it's a you can't you can't live there forever. Like it it just that just becomes a personal crisis. Um, so if that really you adopt that as your philosophy, that has to break down and it, and it either disintegrates into to fascism or or hopefully like you you grow into a a, a better moral system from there. Yeah. Um, but it, it definitely contributed. And, and I think that could potentially lead to how they they found a sort of a kindred spirit in trump where it's like oh this guy's a total troll he he's just like us like when he did the whole cinco de mayo like right. best taco bowls are made in trump tower i love hispanics <laughs> like that's yeah. actually that's 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 kind of fucking funny if totally oh, yeah. divorced from context oh yeah trump is a is a comedy genius i have yeah. to say yeah, yeah, yeah i appreciate you know not through conscious effort, but just pure, a natural, as they say. Right. Um, yeah, no, you're very right. Yeah, Trump was this confluence of almost everything 4chan adored. Um, he's pop, sort of pop culture garbage. He was like in, in a celebrity in the 80s, in these movies and so forth. And so these, this sort of lifestyle of picking through garbage pop culture and making memes out of it was already a core fortune idea, uh, uh, part of the culture. And then, you know, Trump sort of represented this idea of a loser um, uh, or an outsider um, obsessed with winning, kind of poking their way in uh, to this class of people that hated him. Um, so it's just like the outsider on fortune in their mom's basement or, you know, spending all of their school time as the, as the lonely outsider. And then becoming obsessed with the idea that because I'm on the bottom, I want to be on the top. But becoming obsessed with competitions, the idea of becoming obsessed with winning and losing like Trump is. Um, so this resentment of like Trump was also, and Trump was deeply offensive, right? This, that when he appeared among, among the, uh, uh, the elite, everyone else was horrified. Uh, this idea that he would be in the White House and so forth. And it was that that idea that um, uh, everyone that 4chan hated and resented, everyone at the top uh, was rankled by Trump's presence, rankled by the idea that he would become president, that Trump really was like a wrecking ball. Um, they loved that. They adored that. Right? <laughs> um, so yeah, all of those things together just meant that they they loved to troll for Trump, to meme for Trump, by the time Trump uh, started his candidacy in 2015, they were on board 100% to do that. And what do you think, you, you mentioned earlier about how the sort of the QAnon came out of 4chan, where what they call Q drops right. of, of, you know, this mysterious figure called Q will say, you know, hey, the, 
the pigeon flies at night and people have to go and interpret what that means and, you know, watch for blah, 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 like weird, just incomprehensible garbage that then people go, okay, this is an insider who's telling us that Trump is going to uh, uh, take down the international pedophile cabal that is secretly running the world. Right. Um, Okay. (laughs) A lot of questions here. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Yeah. So how, you know, how did, how did QAnon evolve off of 4chan? Yes. Um, yeah. So I, I just did a piece um, uh, with Julian Feld at the QAnon Anonymous podcast um, on this. Um, and it, it, it's actually, it, it can be laid out very clearly. Um, it's, it's crazy that though there's all this great reporting on how the origins of where QAnon came from, people are still sort of baffled, no, baffled by, well, it's not that crazy because it is insane also. <laughs> QAnon is crazy. Um, but the idea here is that, um, so 4chan 2016, it's trolling for Trump, it's memeing for Trump for years since the anonymous days, since the early days of the trolling collective. Uh, every, kids on 4chan or older men, idle men on 4chan would get together in a chat room and they'd say, can we pull a prank? Can we get this news outlet to believe this thing? Uh, can we get, you know, just because there's nothing else to do, it's fun. And they're destructive and nihilistic already. So 2016, they just started doing that for Trump. They say, can we get, I use our meme powers and our this idea of throwing a million ideas at the wall on 4chan to one sticks, just like a meme. Uh, and then the most popular one that everyone loves, that's the one we'll promote. That's also how they created the best pranks. We'll just do that for Trump. So they created a viral rumor that Hillary Clinton was really sick and it worked. Far right media would pick it up uh, and then mainstream media would pick it up. It would fly like rumor across social media because it was already cooked on 4chan as a viral meme. So they had thrown hundreds of dumb ideas about what to say about Hillary. And the most viral, the most interesting ones stuck to the top of 4chan. And now that the whole internet was like 4chan, now that there was Facebook and Twitter monetizing a 4chan-like site, well, that was just more um, uh, perfect environment for that viral idea to spread through those. Um, so they did that. It was great. They, or well, it was great for them. It was very successful for them. Uh, they did, And then they did Pizzagate, this idea that Hillary Clinton was... Um, secretly had a dungeon where she was trading children and harvesting their organs and, and molesting them and so forth. Uh, and it, it had 4chan memes, early 4chan memes encoded in it. Um, they were early on joking about child pornography back in 2004 and 2005. And they put those uh, that, that idea in the, the Pizzagate conspiracy as a joke, uh, but it spread wildly. Um, uh, and so that's 2000. 16, 2017, Trump wins, they just keep doing it. Uh, and so for all of 2017, 4chan trolls on the same pro-Trump boards are, are saying, I'm a government insider. This was another thing 4chan would love to do. They say, I'm an insider, secret anonymous insider, and I'll tell you the secret about Pizzagate. And there were tons of those on 4chan. And by the end of the year, one of them, QAnon, responding to another guy named I don't know, there was FBI Anon, there was government inside, White House Insider Anon, there was a ton of them. He was just responding to another one. He says, Hillary Clinton's gonna get arrested. And people love that idea. And that started going viral. And uh, the, other Anon, the other Anons pretending to be government insiders were quickly forgotten. 
And then everyone on the trolls on 4chan said, well, this is so successful here. Let's bring it to Infowars. Let's bring it to Facebook. Let's bring it to Twitter. Let's bring it to Reddit. It'll go viral on, on all those sites, just like we did with the other pranks. And it worked. And it was, I guess, the most successful one. It's still going. Yeah. Um, so the pandemic made it worse um, because everyone was stuck inside on social media. Trump was like, well, this is useful for me. Trump kind of promoted it, praised it. Uh, and now, and then, you know, we get to a point where 4chan is partly responsible for um, people trying to overthrow the U.S. government. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's what's amazing about it is that there are a lot of people who don't even know what 4chan is who have been right. influenced by 4chan. Oh, yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, most, a lot of the QAnon followers really had no idea about the chans where, you know, QAnon was posting, right? He was, up until the election, he was still posting it weekly or whatever on, on 8chan, the copy of 4chan. Uh, yeah, and they didn't know where it came from or they didn't understand it. Who do you think it is? Do you think this person is just laughing to themselves that everyone believes this? Do you think that this is some kind of, I mean, like I, I just talked to a, a Republican chief of staff for some congressman and right. uh, was, I was getting his take on the, the Capitol riots and right. talking about Q, he said, you know, oh, well, maybe it's maybe it's somebody laughing at themselves. Maybe it's, you know, a, a, a Russian something. Uh, right. You know, like, do we have any idea who this person could be? Is it one person? Um, I'm not sure it's exactly one person. If I were to guess, I would say or more. Um, I think we have a pretty clear idea. We can narrow down very much uh, who it is. Um, um, certainly we can say it's a, it's a set of trolls of on 4chan. So a set of trolls from a very unique subgroup on, on 4chan and 4chan's copy, 8chan, on the poll board where I was describing where they sort of make these pranks. Um, I did a episode or I contributed to an episode of Reply All on this topic of who I, I think it is, or I, um, and I don't, we don't have smoking gun evidence. We have a lot of um, um, evidence that is circumstantial, uh, but it looks like at a certain point though, so there's 4chan uh, and then there's a, a, a worse moderate a copy of Fortune called HN uh, that is even worse off and sort of more filled with fascists and, and Nazis and, and far right people. The owners of that, a father and son, Ron and Jim Watkins, it looks like at a certain point they just recognized how valuable um, QAnon's posts were. And they simply, because they have 100% control of their site, they simply took control of the QAnon account. And we kind of know this because very early on, like a month when Q is starting to post, just when he's starting to get popular. It looks clearly that it was started by uh, two guys, uh, Paul Ferber and Coleman Rogers were 4chan poll people. Uh, and, and Ferber starts a board on 8chan because you can sort of start your own little board like Reddit there. And Q immediately appears there. So it's sort of clear that they're collaborating. Like Q is working with Ferber. Um, and then a few, a few, like a few weeks in, there's sort of like a crisis, like, um, Q loses control of his account, his account gets hacked. And, and then suddenly Ron Watkins steps in and says, you know what, I, this person is Q. Uh, and then Q himself says, I like Ron Watkins. I hate Paul Ferber. I'm leaving this board. And Ron Watkins is always going to be the person I verifying me and Ron, and I'm only going to post on HN forever. That's it. 
Uh, so that's QAnon. So he's always sort of been uh, uh, closely associated with Ron Watkins. And then right before, so after Trump lost the election, right before January 6th riots, uh, the month, sort of the month before that, um, you know, Q promises his audience that, you know, Trump's going to win. They're disappointed when Trump doesn't win. Then Q just stops posting. Uh, and, and at that point, Ron Watkins starts getting very successful on Twitter and sort of taking over uh, the QAnon audience himself and says Trump, um, you know, got the election stolen from him. And Trump starts retweeting Ron Watkins a lot. Um, and um, what ends up happening is, is Matt, Ron just sort of de facto takes over the role of QAnon. Um, he essentially is the, the person playing that role until he gets banned on Twitter after, slightly after January 6th. Um, so it's just, we know very, that Ron is sort of very closely associated with the account. So <laughs> that's, that's the story of who QAnon is. <laughs> Sorry if that was long-winded. No, no, no. I mean, that's, that's what I was looking for. That's fascinating. So in other words, this, this Ron guy is, uh, it could just be him. It could be him and his son. But I mean, I'm 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 trying to think because I I actually I have met people who believe in QAnon. I've had you know wow, a yeah. driver who you know picks me up and I mentioned this in the previous podcast. So I don't want to go too into it. But I every time I get in his car, I'm just like, all right, Wayne, how they lined oh. us today? Like, what's, oh my gosh, what, what's going on? And he seems kind of bummed out <laughs> after after inauguration, right? Because uh, he was right. really hoping for something big. But so I'm trying to think from the perspective of those people and, and, and looking for any, because I mean, you know, this any conspiracy theorist is going to look for the least like little sliver of an opening to say, okay, well, it's real, you know, right. in other words, it could be Ron with the actual Q or are you, are you suggesting that Ron saw that these two guys had a successful idea and is like, uh, all right, I'll take that, and I'm gonna start posting from it. <laughs> uh, so um, that distinction about yeah. So I would say this: um, I can't prove it, but mm. if I had to put money on it, and I would put good money on it, yeah, we'll tell you the story of exactly how QAnon started, uh, which is that a few people on poll um, uh, realized that their uh, their posts under this label QAnon were popular. They jumped into a Discord channel together and that's Paul Ferber and Coleman Rogers and a few other characters, Tracy Beans. These are all infamous early uh, QAnon promoters in the first month when no one else cared about it, right? Yeah. Just really a handful of people. There is some evidence. Ron was in there too, even back then. Um, it's sort of clear lately that he was always on the far right. Um, so, you know, and he's hanging out on the boards too. Um, and that's when, uh, that's late 2017. Or January, 2018, um, there's some trouble in the group that we know this. They, some of these group members have told me personally, they also have blog accounts where they all start fighting with each other. And in that crisis, the only person that can probably took control is the person who owns the website where Q is posting, which is Ron. So Ron has to step in and say, you know, I, I have to control the account. I'll, I'll do it. 
Um, and yeah, like you say, it could be his, him and his dad, who his dad also runs the site, uh, Jim Watkins. Um, it could be, um, um, you know, maybe Ron gave it to some other folks, but that's my, you know, I, I don't have this, you know, this positive evidence that's true, but I would bet good money. That's exactly how QAnon started. And that's, you know, uh, that's who was in control of the account uh since that since that point yeah and i you know i talked to ron for hours really yeah he would never speak to me on the phone or anything but yeah we i have like you know six hours dms with him kind of just hammering him on this issue of like are you q uh and of course they deny that they've ever you know him and his father denied they've ever been q uh interestingly enough um uh, Ron told me, you know, I was like, you know, let's talk about this moment when it looks like you took over the account. And Ron would always say the same thing. He said, a documentary film crew was there filming me and I can't talk about it because they have an exclusive. And it looks like HBO bought that documentary. Uh, we just, a trailer came out a day or two ago. Really? Okay. So that next week we might see that on HBO. So I, I don't know. I'm promoting the stock. I have nothing to do with. I'm guessing it's that filmmaker actually. Um, uh, so we'll see. So that, that the other shoe might drop next week. <laughs> so he, he, he does, if it's the documentary filmmaker, I think of, he has a ton, you know, he was there, Ron and Jim live in the Philippines. So he was there in the Philippines interviewing him back then. Um, Jim Watkins was at the Capitol riot, um, on January 6th in DC. I think he was there filming him as well. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll see. It, it could be that we get a lot of evidence, more clear evidence, but yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if that's not going to convince your Uber driver. Though. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, yeah. It, it's, it's what you pointed out earlier about nature abhors a vacuum and the nihilism where you, you think about how cynical you have to be to say, yeah, the election was stolen from Trump. Uh, and the other side is full of frauds who are, you know, uh, th- this is all just a charade. And then you are conducting a massive charade that is that is brainwashing hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people. I don't know. Yeah. And like if you were a total prankster, I can almost see how that would be the greatest prank of all time of of we we yeah. deluded people so well that they stormed the Capitol. Like, <laughs> right. It's almost, if you take a cosmic perspective on it, it's almost a, a perfect prank. But when you actually believe it, does this guy believe what he's saying? Is, is it possible to bullshit that much and not believe it? Um, I mean, are you asking kind of personally what, what I think is going on inside Ron Watkins' head? Yes. Is that, is that the question? Yes. Yeah, Ron is a very peculiar character. Um, uh, I, if I were to guess, yeah, people, have this, people who know him personally have described him as sort of like a sociopathic liar. Okay. And to, to me, I get, I get this feeling that, yeah, he's secretly... He, it was, me, he would sort of conceal that he was secretly very far right. He sort of claimed he didn't believe in politics. And I got this feeling of sort of like weird, vacant emptiness where he was often lying for no reason. 
Um, and some of the, and so it felt like kind of like, you know, that, that feeling of like clicking through a bunch of hyperlinks where one, you know, you're clicking over there, you're clicking through and it's like opening an endless series of doors. Um, it really did. That was sort of the vibe I got talking to him where you thought, okay, this is the idea of his personality, but in fact, he's just telling me a bunch of weird lies. And then that kind of crumbles and, and then you're set with a new set of lies. So he told me, for example, he never worked for his father, that it was always a hobby. But yeah. it's well documented that his only job ever has been working for his father's tech company. <laughs> that owns it. Wow. So like, you know, I was like, you know, I, I just know that's not true. You know, like, you know, this narrative. And there's no reason to lie. I thought at first it was an insecurity. I thought like, right. okay, this tells me something about him. Yeah. It tells me that he's sort of ashamed that he doesn't have a real job working for his dad. I thought he was like, uh, I thought he was like the other channers that sort of like felt bad that they kind of like didn't have a real job. They were stuck inside, sort of like not doing anything that felt legitimate. But I think he was just, I don't think that was the case. I think I really had no sort of, I, I did not get a grasp on who he was or what he was lying about. Um, there's famous footage of him now. He first appeared in a cowboy hat uh, with a mustache on the OAN network. Um, saying that the election was stolen um, and Trump retweeted this segment over and over. That's when he started retweeting Ron because Ron emerged right after QAnon stopped posting, right before the Capitol riot, uh, Ron was tweeting to his vast QAnon audience that he was an election expert and that- um, uh, Everyone's an expert these days. <laughs> yeah, that he was an, a security ex, election security expert, and that the election he looked into elect the and he looked into it all, and it's all you know it was stolen in Georgia, and Trump loved this. Um, yeah, so and I don't think you know the early anonymous people uh, figures when they would troll, they would do it with like winking irony. It would be, you know, they were self-aware. I don't think right. Ron actually was very self-aware. I don't think he was wearing that cowboy hat um, as a self-aware wink. I think he actually looks naturally goofy and he, and it's just him. He's just all troll. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, the other, the other thing, I guess your point is also true that a lot of them are just self-destructive, right? They, or not self-destructive, right? Destructive in the sense that they want society to end or they just want the current, they want to do as much damage as possible. And so spreading misinformation online, they recognize as a tool that might help their side, um, might help get them what they want. Yeah. And that it's, yeah. And they're willing to do that. And, and I know we've gone over this, but there's still at the end of all this, uh, there's such a why like, why? Why do you just, you know, like, why do you want everything to burn? Like, why are you that? <laughs> why do you not care? Like, is it possible to answer that why? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think so. I mean, it's very clear on the chain. I don't know if it's clear for Ron so much um, in particular, but in the chance, it's very clear that it's economic. Um, so it's partly social, but um, what it, what's the Bill Clinton expression? It's the economy, stupid or whatever. You're always supposed to go, but and that's reductive. But all of these guys uh, on the chance felt feel left out of society. Feel like they're not, you know, they're doing worse off than their parents. And then the reaction to that is negative in the sense that they just become, they just fall into uh, consumerism and like entertainment consumerism. So 
they just spend all day playing video games or on the internet and that just makes the problem worse. Um, so that combination sort of like this rise of screen worlds and escapism combined with the rise in inequality where you get these vast group of people who feel like outsiders and they're not dealing with it well. Well, yeah. then that just rankles into like pure desocialized hate. And at that point, you're like, burn it all to the ground, right? You're stocking uh, boxes in Pizza Hut and, and you've been there for 10 years and you've been on Fortune for 10 years. Or you're 18 and you know, you're in school debt and, and you have really no prospects. What, what are the politics of those people going to be like? Well, they're going to be like, let's do, how can we best destroy society? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of it where, where it comes from. Though you, of course, get lots of crazy people and oddballs on those sites too. Um, maybe people that have, would never be functional. And Ron might be one of those. Yeah. <laughs> He's an odd duck. Yeah, you mentioned the economic thing as being kind of reductive. And it is and it isn't. I get what you're saying, but it's I'm still left with the why because I'm I I I went to India at one point and I was in old Delhi, which yeah. is you, you know the streets are unpaved. There's it's just uh, so tight with people and horses and people right. going to the bathroom in the middle of the street and you know I. I remember standing on a rooftop and just sort of catching my breath and there's just this hive of people and, and everyone was hustling and doing something and like, you know, making, I saw a guy making just endless amounts of rotis on, on this little gas stove, right. Shirt off, like pouring sweat. And he would have like a whole, you know, like 10 foot by five foot rectangle of, of, of like, paper or whatever that he would put it on and then go out, dry it in the sun uh, on the roof. And then he would go back and keep making more. And I'm like, that guy's life is objectively, economically way worse than, right. I, I mean, I would guess the vast majority, if not the totality of people posting on 4chan, like, right. And, and he's not, I mean, I don't know what his politics are like, but he's, he's not burning it all down, you know, <laughs> there's gotta be right. some, some other it maybe it has to do with just being uh the hyper individualistic culture and everyone's an, an atom in society and so if you don't recognize society then it's way easier to burn it down but i i don't know i i do think that's part of it there's definitely a cultural part of that um that's maybe western individualism and, and so forth uh I, I i'll supply an answer and maybe it's right or wrong i guess please um I've made this point in the book, I think it's a de Tocqueville point um, uh, about Occupy Wall Street, where like, why in, why did it happen then in 2000, was it 11, 2010? Um, and the idea was that um, if people have nothing and they keep having nothing, they won't get angry. And so de Tocqueville, I think, made this point about the French Revolution. And de Tocqueville said, it happened when there was a promise that like, things were about to get better or that like things like, you know, they were, people were about to get something and then they didn't get it. Um, so this idea that like um, Occupy Wall Street happened when it was Obama coming in and Obama promised change. And then when by 2010, 
that hope had sort of collapsed as Obama moved to the center. Nothing really fundamentally changed, but he ran on this brand of fundamental change. Um, so that the hopes dashed is what gives rise to rebellion and revolution. So here, if these group of people on 4chan, you know, were sort of people that lived in um, generational poverty, right? Those people wouldn't rebel. But if it's people whose parents were rich, who might've had something, who were like on the edge, the cusp of like, they see other people at their school, other friends, other people having middle-class lifestyles, having something they feel like they deserve. And then it's dashed away because America ideology says, you know, you'll have this, you'll have a house, you'll have kids, you'll have all this middle-class stuff. It'll be just like your parents and then you don't get it. Well, then, then that's rage, right? Then that's like political revolution. I don't know, that, that would be my guess. <laughs> Maybe it might be, it might be wrong though. That's, um, I think that's a, a hopeful note to end it on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm always really, you know, I'm really sunny all the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, Dale, before we go here, is there anything you want to uh, get off your chest, promote, uh, plug, et cetera? Um, no, you can uh, you can buy my book. You can, I, I'll plug the book uh, if you, you. It seems where can you, people get you, that? Um, they can get it anywhere. Anywhere books are sold. It, it came right. from something awful. You can buy that. <laughs> um, yeah, my other pieces aren't my. The piece I'm working on now isn't out yet, so I won't plug that yet. <laughs> but you can get the book. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, you know, once in a great age, I tweet, but it's a you know, it's a, it's amazing when it happens. So. There you go. <laughs> All right, uh, Dale, look, I, 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 love, I love what you're doing. Uh, I love this conversation. So thank you and take care. Yeah, uh, great to talk to you. Yeah, you too. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, thank you to Dale Baran and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.